Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Across the Pond. I am Chad Sturley and I'm here in London. Um, tuned in via Skype is my co-host Barry Maurice. And uh, really, we've got one thing to talk about this week, Barry. Our full episode is pretty much going to be clogged up by uh, the really, really important coronavirus and what's happened over this last week. Yeah, that's it. Um, it it's dominating the news. It really is everything everyone is talking about. Um, it's obviously one of the biggest health crises of a generation and so we have a lot to chat about today, Chad. So let's get straight into it. Well, if you are new here, welcome. This is Across the Pond. Well, like we said, loads to talk about today. Um, we've kind of tried to put a little bit of structure into place, but there's no doubt today's conversation is going to be far reaching. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, let's let's really just tackle it. Barry, do you want to take us through where we're at at the moment? Obviously, this is as of Monday, the 16th of March. Definitely, Chad. And, and it's a very important point to make that we are on the 16th of March here, and these numbers are moving day by day. So it's kind of a snapshot in time. We hope we're going to give some sort of context as what's happening today and what's happening right now, but these things are moving so quickly. And so keep that in mind as you're listening. Yeah. We're going to start with the World Health Organization, which is probably the most reputable source of information on this, on this virus because they are this global leading health organization that really thinks deeply about these topics. And a few days ago, they finally announced that this virus is an officially called a pandemic. Yep. And uh, it's kind of semantics in a, in a way because um, what actually gives the criteria to be pandemic and whatnot is all a bit, bit, bit shaky and all over the place. But basically what they're trying to do is just trying to show everyone how serious this is. And by calling it a pandemic, it really does release a lot of the the kind of will it or won't it um, discussion around the virus, what kind of impact will it have, and really shows that it is really taking over the world. Yep. And so one of the quotes that I pulled out from the article, Chad, was that they are deeply concerned both by the alarming levels of spread and severity, but also by the alarming levels of inaction by world leaders in response to the outbreak. Yeah. And so from the, from the WHO, what, by calling it a pandemic, they're trying to push world leaders to actually take this more seriously and start talking out about, about the various issues. Absolutely. There's no doubt about that. I think that's a really, really interesting one um, where you do have an organization like this that uh, is kind of at that world level and does kind of oversee everything that's happening across the world. It is their best placed really to uh, point some fingers of criticism where, where due. Um, and obviously, since making that statement, there have been certain developments. Um, but you always have to question whether these developments are, are literally just to address those concerns um, or if they are actually practical, pragmatic solutions um, to what is unfolding. Um, so, I mean, if we look at the latest numbers, let's let's deep dive into that. Um, across the globe, the, the number of confirmed cases is 174,000. Um, we've had basically 6,700 deaths um, around, around about there. And in terms of recoveries, around 77,000 um, of those as well. I mean, I mean, just in terms of those number of, of confirmed cases, as far as I'm standing, where I'm standing, um, I reckon that number is grossly understated. Yeah, I think it's definitely understated. I think we must remember that these numbers are only coming from those people who have actually gone and got themselves tested and yep. their test results have come back as positive. There's a huge majority of the population who might have the symptoms or might even not have the symptoms yet, but have the virus and aren't being tested. And there's also a large struggle with getting enough tests to the various regions. So I know, for example, in the States, they, they don't have enough tests to actually do on all the people. Yep. And so some people are suggesting that those numbers could be a fifth or a, or a quarter of what the actual number is. Um, and so I think it's very important to realize that these numbers are preliminary and they yeah. are grossly understated when we think about the impact of this thing. 
Absolutely. I mean, with those numbers as we have it, at least one thing that we can see now is that the number of cases outside of China now exceed those in China themselves. And uh, I mean, that's certainly an interesting stat to see. This morning as well, uh, as of Monday the 16th, like we said, the worldwide financial markets crashing again. We spoke about this last week, Barry. We spoke quite extensively about the crude oil price as well. Um, but if we look at some of these markers, the London FTSE 100 down 8% on opening today. Uh, same thing seen in the US's S&P 500, also down 8%. And if you look at the Dow Jones, uh, that's fallen 9.7%. All of these indexes on opening. Bit of a crazy one, really. Yeah, it's, it's a bloodbath and it's continued to go down since last we chatted, Chad. I think that I think it's inevitable that we're going to go into some sort of global recession. I don't know how the economy is going to recover quickly enough to kind of offset these losses. Um, I think everyone is worried about their economies and what is the economic impact of, of this virus on their particular countries. And uh, because everything's so interrelated, all these markets are interrelated. So there's no market that's, that's insulated from this at all because everything's so interrelated. Yeah. Um, and so I think we're going to go through a real tough time as, as a world. I think all the economies are going to come under strain. And I don't think we've hit the bottom yet, Chad. I think we're going to go into a recession from this. Well, I'm mean, just a little reminder to anyone listening, a technical recession uh, really requires two quarters of uh, contraction. Um, so obviously, there's quite a long period of time before we even know that. Um, but I mean, just looking at these indicators, I think very, very reasonable to assume that. Now, obviously, we've kind of addressed where we're at right now. Let's take a look at the week that was. The week that was. So the week that was, let's uh, unravel everything that happened in terms of the developments this week. Um, what we've done is we've split this up into country, into region, um, just to kind of, like I said, give a little bit of structure behind all of these stats that we're going to be throwing at you. Um, so we're going to start off on my side of the pond, uh, the UK. Um, and the first two things really quite significant. Um, the first one being the interest rate cuts that we've seen. It's basically a cut that's taken it to the lowest level in history. Um, so this is a cut that basically went from 0.75% to 0.25%, not leaving a lot of room there in terms of fiscal policy. Um, and this is really just done to to provide some stimulus uh, to the economy, obviously, like we saw this morning with the, uh, the markets crashing, uh, not really being well received. Yeah, but I think it's the only move these guys have got, right? If you look at the Reserve Bank and what they're trying to do to prop up the economy and trying to mitigate some of the risks here, this kind of stimulus is the only real lever they have to play with. Um, so I, th I think we're going to see it across the world. We definitely saw it in the U.S. as well. And so I think it's an important piece of, of fiscal movement um, to try and encourage spending in the economy because if everyone's going to be quarantining, everyone's going to be staying at home, everyone's going to be stop gathering in public spaces, there isn't that money going through the economy and, and getting, getting the veins going. And so I think it's an important piece of a fiscal um, move, um, but whether it's gonna actually going to achieve what it needs to, we don't actually know. Absolutely. Well, uh, I mean, there are loads of nations out there who've got negative interest rates. So, you know, when I said there's not much more to go, um, you know, never say never really um, is where I'm, where I'm coming from. Um, in terms of the, the next thing that happened was the, the 2020 budget speech. We had the chancellor come out and uh, basically tell us what, what's happening uh, on the course of the next year. And of course, coronavirus, um, top of mind there. Uh, Five billion pounds is going to be set aside as an emergency response fund uh, to support the NHS and the public services. Um, people who self-isolate on the back of this virus will be entitled to staff 
statutory sick pay, and this is even if they haven't presented with symptoms. Um, firms with less than 250 staff will be refunded for these sick pay payments for up to two weeks, um, and these small firms will also be able to access uh, business interruption loans uh, of up to 1.2 million pounds. And uh, last but not least, obviously, there's a whole bunch of other things discussed, but we kind of just picked out the key things. Um, six billion pounds in extra NHS funding uh, will be put into place over the next five years to pay for staff recruitment and hospital upgrades. Now, quite a few measures there, Barry. Um, do you think this could be sufficient? Are we thinking about the right kinds of things? I think so. I think that when it comes to an economic perspective, which what the budget speech is focused on, yeah. we're looking at how are these small, medium businesses actually going to survive. Because the truth of the matter is that when you're, when you're a small business, you often don't have a lot of runway. You don't have a huge rainy day fund to set aside that can tide you through these kinds of, these kinds of unsettling periods of time. Definitely. And so by trying to help them pay the sick leave, so in, encourage people not to come into work and rather stay at home and, and not let the company be financially burdened by that, that's a good thing. And then the loan as well to try and help them through this period is very important. I think that if the, the more small businesses feel like they can actually survive this period, the better morale is going to be in the country and the better your economy is going to survive. If those businesses start to die because obviously they're not getting enough customers through the doors and they aren't yeah. able to keep paying their salaries and whatnot, it really does have a long-term impact for the future of those industries and for the country itself. And so I think it's very important. Um, obviously, the UK are in a strong financial position, so they're able to make these kinds of these kinds of plays. Um, and when you look at like weaker countries or, or, or um, countries like South Africa, for example, if we had to try and come up with this, this sort of stimulus, we wouldn't have the money to do it. And so it's a very privileged position the UK are in to trying to make these make these these calls and do what they need to do. Um, and to help small medium businesses is very important, I think. Can't agree more with you there on, on those ones. But now if we kind of take one little step back and look at look at the bigger companies, um, let's look at the stock market crash that we've seen today. Um, a lot of those are, again, we've obviously been speaking about this, airlines, uh, companies in the travel sector, companies as well in the hospitality sector, hotels and, and the like. Um, even if you look at something like a, a cinema chain um, who rely on, on people coming through the door um, you know, to, to watch the latest films, um, all of those stocks have, have seen plummets. And uh, I mean, like you said, working capital is not something that's unique to just small entities. Um, also quite worrying for, for them as well. No, definitely. It's, it's going to be one of those times where you're going to have to pull out all those contingency plans that, that all the consultants create for you when you think there's yep. nothing ever going to go wrong. And you're going to have to have those plans on hand and know how to deal with it. So my, my assumption is a lot of the big companies will have planned for these sorts of crazy scenarios, even just in a model format, and will have some sort of action plan as to how to keep themselves alive. And, and, and they're, they're more able to kind of tell their staff to work from home. They're more able yep. to put things on hold for a bit and kind of look for further investment if they need to rather than the small guy who might not be able to raise money quickly to try and tie it over this period absolutely i mean talking about something else that happened this week barry you watched the boris johnson press conference why don't you tell us some of the things you picked out of that yeah, so this was a few days after the budget speech and basically it was the uk's first very formal yeah. action plan setting exercise where they were telling telling the uk how they were going to deal with 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 the virus and I found it very interesting, and, and it's been causing a lot of contro controversy around the world, and especially in the UK, Chad, which we'll chat to just now. Um, but basically, how he started this this talk was by talking about this as the worst public health crisis of a generation. So very, very strong words there, um, and and really like emphasizing how important this virus actually is and how dangerous it can be. 
Um, and so after he kind of brought that out and everyone kind of quietened down in the room after hearing that statement, he started talking through, on the basis of the scientific advice that they've received as the government, what they are putting in place to try and fight this. So let's go through it step by step, Chad, because what I think is interesting about it is that it's very different to what's happening around the rest of the world. Yep. Um, for some reason, the UK have got a different piece of advice and they're looking at it in a different way, which is, might, might be right or wrong, we don't know, sure. but it's different. And so that's why it's worth, worth talking about. Yep. The first piece is that they're not closing schools. So around the rest of the world, a lot of schools are closed because kids spread germs like nothing else. Yeah. And unfortunately, the younger people are more likely to have not have the symptoms but still be spreading the virus because their immune system is strong enough to handle it. Absolutely. Then they spread it to their parents and to their grandparents, and that's where the issue comes. So they are not closing schools because they believe that self-isolation is more effective. Basically, the comment that they made in the press conference was that they're worried that by isolating school children at home and uh, not letting them like, be in structured environments means they're more likely to socially interact with people and to go and visit grandparents and visit parents and whatnot. And they'd rather keep that on a, on a kind of a lower level at the moment, at least for the time being. Um, and th what they're saying is that anyone who has symptoms must then leave school and must self-isolate for seven days. Um, and that's kind of how they're dealing with the school thing. Do you have any thoughts on the school piece, Chad? It's really, really interesting. I mean, like you said, uh, many other nations have, have really made that call to close schools. We'll go through those as we get down the list. Um, and this side, it is also, like you said, being looked at with a very contentious um, gaze. So, yeah, in terms of, in terms of that, that thought work in terms of where they're actually getting this information i think that's that's what a lot of people are actually asking for um what is this scientific um you know who, who are the professionals you, you're talking to and um, because like you said this actually goes against decades long of um you know policy really in terms of how how one actually reacts to a crisis like this um and so you know whether that that is the right thinking or not um you know potentially they're just playing a bit of poker for a bit of time um, to kind of try and reduce that that peak, which I think we'll, we'll get to. Um, and so maybe this is just one of those parts. Yeah, I, th I think that's important. I think that like they're not saying that this is not a good idea to, to isolate to close schools. What they're saying is that they're trying to time it better. Yeah. So we, we, as you say, we're going to come to the peak later, and the, all the UK's kind of advice talks about this timing thing as to when is the best time to do a full shutdown. Yeah. And if you do it too early, they worry about fatigue on the public's behalf. So, for example, they they also they don't think that banning mass gatherings is is as effective as everyone else thinks around the world because they make the point that it can just as easily spread with three or four people sitting at a bar yep. rather than 10,000 people in a music concert. And so they haven't been as stringent as cancelling a lot of the major events as around the world has. And I think that'll change over the next few days as people start to cancel sporting events and music concerts and all that good stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point. Uh, because, I mean, if you look at all of the, the mass gathering type events, um, one, one that we're going to come to is, is the horse racing. And uh, today being Monday, um, there's a meeting taking place without anybody there. If we look at the, the Premier League, all of those leagues have been you know completely cancelled. Um, loads of different sporting events and all of that kind of thing. And so although the government might not be coming out and saying, you know, putting a ban on mass gatherings of a over a certain threshold like other nations are, it seems like these organizations themselves are taking upon themselves um, to look at what's happening across the globe and, and to actually act in a, a different way, which is interesting. 
Yeah, it definitely is. And I think I think it's gonna, it's one of those things where the social pressure will, will close those events because people don't want to go to those events. Yeah. And so the government doesn't have that much of a say in, in that sort of thing. I think w- where they have a say is more schools, universities, public services, those sorts of things. Yeah. Some of these mass market gatherings, the concerts and, and sports tournaments and whatnot, that's going to be dictated by the actual bodies who run those events. So I agree completely with what you're saying. Moving on to what I think is the most important piece of this is that the reason that the UK is so different to everyone else is because they are taking a longer term time horizon on this thing. They are worried about a complete shutdown too early that then results in people being in self-quarantine for a long period of time and getting fatigued with it and and not being able to handle being at home for weeks at a time. So that, so that basically the experts that are advising Boris and his government are saying that they're being warned about the importance of not moving too quickly with dramatic lifestyle changes to try and deal with the virus. Anything too onerous suggested by the government, such as a two-week isolation period for a whole household, might be adopted enthusiastically for the first little bit, for the first few weeks. Yep. But then people get bored and they start to leave their homes just as the peak of the virus hits. So what they are saying is that they are trying to time this thing correctly so that the only the, the, the strict shutdown period only happens over the peak of the virus um, and not too early. And basically this lockdown in the movements would, would mean that if you do it too early and then you start coming back into real life and then the peak hits, you could be in a way, way worse situation. So that's kind of the aim of these, of these measures, to try and time that correctly and not panic too early. Um, what is the sentiment on the ground there, Chad? Because I know it's, a, it's not a popular opinion, this. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the question here is, what do other nations know that we don't? Uh, so if you look at you know, the considerations that they would have taken, they've obviously got access to the same sort of caliber of scientific minds. Um, they've studied human behavior in terms of what happens when the person is home for weeks on end. Um, and so they have still decided to to take this action, to to enforce this, these lockdowns. Um, and so in terms of this side, like you said, a lot of people are getting a bit frustrated, um, wondering you know, what the actual play is here. Um, and uh, I know people who are actually going against the, the advice, which is currently pretty much um, business as usual, and who are actually kind of vehemently uh, arguing with their employers, making sure that they work from home so that they feel safe. I mean, this is a case where obviously, you know, in London, the apartments aren't as big as um, elsewhere in the world. And so you let Left with a case where you have four people in a really small place uh, for weeks on end, um, and like you mentioned, uh, you know, really an interesting human experiment. Um, but it seems like a lot of people are going that route anyway, um, and are you know sort of just protecting themselves in the end. Yeah, it calls into question how the government can enforce these kinds of views, right? Because everyone's kind of reading the same things on social media and watching the same news from around the world, and that's going to dictate their behavior much more than a government um, order. So it's, it's, it's a strange call from them. I yeah. can see some sort of logic in it because I, I, I've been reading a lot about the, the nature of the timing of these things. And if you look at these graphs that have this giant peak and then this trough, it, it makes a lot of sense to try and time that correctly. But especially in, in, in a world where we don't have enough tests and we're not getting the right numbers, how can you actually make that decision? And so I, I, I kind of think the reason the lockdowns are happening around the rest of the world is that acknowledgement that these numbers are not correct and not accurate. And we don't actually know what the real situation is on the ground. So rather be overly cautious than uh, like overly blasé about it. 
Yeah, and I think the other thing is that this this thing grows exponentially. Uh, the numbers, you know, just double. Um, the, the most recent stat is almost double every three days. Um, and so, you know, if you if you kind of are a little bit too late in, in getting that timing right, especially like you said, when those stats aren't the most up to date numbers that they could be, um, it really does become a pretty worrying prospect. Definitely. Moving on to the travel stuff. So obviously we've seen big travel bans around the world and lots of international travel has been shut down. The UK government had come out and said that these kind of bans are not actually effective unless you get 95% of the flights actually stopped. Um, and so they reckon that they can't enforce a 95% um, stoppage because it just doesn't happen in a world economy. And so that's why the travel bans for them haven't been as stringent as the rest of the world, um, which is an, a, another strange thing to do, Chad. Yeah, I think it's a weird argument to make. Uh, I mean, like you said, even if you do stop 50 to 55% of flights, considering the exponential nature of this, I mean, if you if you look at the concept of something like compound interest, you know, every little bit of every little bit makes a difference. And so for me, 50 to 55% still makes a huge difference. Um, if you look at the, the blanket bans that other countries have taken, which we'll get to um, further down the line, um, these certainly effective measures. If you, if you consider the fact that this virus originated from China, um, ultimately, the only way that it has been passing is through travel. Um, so to, to make a statement like this seems a bit weird. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange one. I'm going to have to wait and see if they, if they turn their backs on that one because I think the, the consensus around the world is to shut down all international travel to try and make sure we can contain it within the various countries that, that it's currently in. Absolutely. I think with Chad, we've moved into testing now. And testing, we've been chatting about a little bit about how there aren't enough tests and the tests aren't necessarily getting to the right places around the world. Um, the UK announced they're going to be now going to be a shift in, in, in testing. So previously they were in what they called a contain phase where yeah. they were trying to isolate individual cases, get a diagnosis, and then try and trace all the people that that person has come into contact with over the past couple of weeks and trying to manage it in that way. Obviously, this has gotten too big too quickly, and now the, the actual act of trying to trace um, all these thousands of cases is is nigh impossible. Yeah. And so what they've moved into now is the fact that they understand that the hospitals are going to come under increasing strain as the people with real serious symptoms come into hospital. So what they've asked people to do is if you have mild symptoms or if you're young and healthy and you just got like flu-y type symptoms, don't go into a hospital and rather just self-isolate and self-medicate and spend like seven days at home to get over the virus yourself rather than coming into public areas like hospitals or whatnot to get treated. So instead of now focusing on how can we test as many people as possible, what they're trying to say is let's keep the hospital beds open for the people who are worse affected. And if you've got mild symptoms, you have to self-isolate and do it yourself. Yeah, this is a completely contentious move because like we said, um, you know, if you actually don't have a, a good line of sight in terms of the number of infections, how are you able to take, a, a, you know, the, the correct approach in terms of addressing this virus, especially on a macro level? Um, so, you know, for me, the fact that they're not allowing people to have tests at all, unless you're actually in hospital, um, is a really, really worrying one. And I'm not entirely sure why they would do that. Potentially, uh, it's to do with the test kits and the shortage that we're seeing across the globe. But I mean, if you consider something like the fact that South Korea uh, have been able to test 10,000 people per day, uh, yet the UK have only to date tested 40,000 people. That's insane for me. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I think the reason they're doing this is because they have to triage those tests because they've only got a limited amount and they need to use them on the cases that really, really matter. 
Um, but like you say, it's it's a kind of an indictment on the ability of these first world countries around the world to produce tests quickly and at a mass scale. So South Korea have been amazing in this. And they've really, yeah. really like shown the world what the, how to deal with these sorts of struggles. Um, and I think across the world, we're facing testing shortages. And so people are trying to make them as quickly as possible. And so obviously, if there's enough, then we want everyone to get tested. But if there's only a small portion, it's only a small amount, we need to be careful about where we use those tests. And yeah. it's, a silly, it's a silly constraint to have. We, in the 21st century world, we really shouldn't have this constraint. I completely agree with you there. I mean, if we look at the, the, the sort of effect that it has on people who are showing symptoms, who are not actually sure if they have it or, or don't have it, I mean, what kind of level do you then conduct yourself if you're not even able to to tell whether you have it or not? You may be living in an apartment uh, with a partner, um, and some people have been able to do this very successfully and actually isolate from their partner by sleeping in another room, you know, making sure you're not coming to close contact all the time. Um, how are you even able to take those measures when you have a cough you know you're not entirely sure if you have it or not yeah it, it kind of feeds all the panic right it feeds the panic and the paranoia because psychologically you're going through the worst case scenarios in your brain obviously and you're yep. trying to take that seriously um, but you might actually be in a different situation to what you think um, I think that a little bit of panic is useful because, like like we said, that, that social distancing and that isolation is very important. Yeah. But if you sit at home all day and you've got that cough and you're reading the news and you're watching social media, you can drive yourself crazy. And so the quicker we can get more tests um, to everybody, the better. Um, the people making these tests and whatnot, we need to be manufacturing as fast as possible and getting yeah. as many as possible. I kind of see a future where the entire world's going to have to be tested to try and get a sense of where it's going to be at in six to nine months' time. Um, yeah. And so the quicker we get those tests on the ground, the better. I mean, that's a really, really important point you mentioned there, Barry, because uh, the, the thing here is uh, in terms of our, us building immunity to it, so once we've actually contracted it and work our way through the virus, um, it looks like it hasn't been yet confirmed whether we hold that immunity or whether we can then contract the virus again. And so there's been cases where people have tested positive twice, um, but they're not sure whether it is testing twice for the same thing um, or whether they've worked their way through it and picked it up again. Um, and so this is also a really important point, especially as we look at the horizon ahead uh, in the next couple of years. Yeah, definitely. I, I read a fascinating, albeit slightly controversial article last night talking about the idea of forced exposure. So in order to try and build this immunity, right, we're going to need this immunity going forward. Like if we get yeah. if we get through this short period of time, it's not the end of the virus. The virus continues. And and the fact that the fact that we we don't have an immunity right now, we don't have a vaccine is, is a worrying thing on a long-term basis. So like you say, with everyone who's getting tested, we need to figure out if we can build this immunity into our population. And the more immunity we have in that population, the the less the virus can thrive and the better control we have over it. Yeah. Um, and so it's not, it's not a matter of trying to kill this virus at its knees and not, not a matter of trying to stop it infecting everybody because then it just needs us to come back later down the line. It's trying to manage the situation, trying to manage where the outbreaks are, where the infections are, and then using whatever science and medicine we can to analyze those people who have recovered and try and figure out, do they have immunity going forward? Are we in a better position in 2022, 2023 with this particular strain of the virus? especially as we wait for a vaccine, which could take 12 to 18 months. Absolutely. And I think that's also an important point um, is if we sort of face the reality um, and, and that's kind of one of the things that Boris focused on in this press briefing um, was that it's, it's likely we're all going to get it uh, at some point, um, which, is, which is interesting. So if we take a statement like that, Barry, how do you feel about potentially getting this at some stage? 
I don't know how to feel, Chad. I don't know how to feel. I've been reading so much for the last couple of days and we were chatting offline about how there's so much misinformation and fake news out yeah. there and whatnot. Some people are saying, oh, it's just a flu, man. Relax. Why are you panicking <laughs> so much? Some people are losing their minds. They're stocking toilet yeah. paper and canned goods and whatnot. So I don't know what to think. It's one of those things where we don't actually know what's going to happen. No one can predict what the outcome of this is going to be. And hopefully it becomes one of those like lesser known flu viruses that we can deal with on a, on a, on a monthly basis. I mean, a lot of people are pulling out these stats of how many people are, are, are killed by the normal flu every single year. And, and those numbers are sc scary as well. Yeah. But we have a system and a health system that's set up. We understand how the vaccines work. We have the right medication. We have the right kind of infrastructure to deal with that. And so hopefully this virus becomes another one of those. But there is a small but non-negligible risk that this becomes a real super virus. And, yeah. and that's the concern we're trying to, to, to fight against. And so I think, I think a little bit of panic here is useful yeah. to try and take this very, very seriously. It's much better to take this very seriously and then laugh at each other like later down the line because we took it too seriously rather than kind of be too blasé about it, let it spread even more and then really worry down the line. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of, uh, you know, what that World Health Organization statement um, is, um, is really that, you know, a lot of global leaders are not actually doing enough. Um, and that kind of talks to that and, and talks to really the, the change in messaging that we've seen over the past week. Now, you and I have been talking about this for literally uh, when it sort of started. Um, and every week we, we kind of joke that it's, you know, this is our, our weekly uh, our weekly session that we, we chat about the coronavirus. But in this past week, the, the sort of messaging and, and the, the sort of seriousness that, that people are starting to attract to this virus has, has definitely picked up a notch. Um, and I, for one, am, am glad about that because hopefully then we can make some meaningful progress. Um, moving on to the next thing, um, on the back of this press briefing that you saw, we're going to be seeing from the UK daily press briefings um, from today, from Monday. Um, I was quite sad in terms of the, the time that we took this podcast and I actually wasn't able to catch the first one. Um, but it's certainly going to be interesting to to see what, what comes out of those. Uh, a lot of people are saying that the reason why this is coming about is because of all the criticism that's been thrown in the way of the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Um, and so you've got to just wonder whether anything that's going to come out of these press briefings are actually going to hold water um, or whether it's just to address this negative publicity. Yeah, this, this is where the, the world leaders need to really earn their keep and, and really show why they are leading from the front. These, these kind of press briefings are the things that everybody is going to watch and it's going to dictate a lot of the mood and kind of the way that people think about the virus and the way that people think about how it's dealing in their, in their country. And so to speak with clarity of thought and to speak with like real science behind you is obviously very important. We haven't seen that from Trump. We haven't seen that from the UK just yet. Yeah. Um, and so I think that we need to take a leaf out of the book of people like Singapore and South Korea, whose leaders came and really spoke with real gravitas about the thing. They were very honest. They were very upfront and transparent about the numbers and whatnot. And they weren't thinking about politics at all. Yeah. This is one of those things where we need to put politics aside and we need to be able to deal with this as a global community and especially important countries like the UK, like the US, who hold so much of the influence around the world. The way these leaders act over the next couple of weeks is vitally important. Absolutely. Talking about the kind of figureheads and uh, and who's being looked at, um, obviously the monarch of the UK, uh, the Queen, she's going to be staying in London um, through the next couple of months. Um, it really feels like it's an important thing for her to be part of and one of the people and not to kind of flee to some sort of safe place, um, you know, to kind of get away from the situation. Um, obviously, given her age, it's just weeks before her 94th birthday. She's obviously at increased risk, um, like we've seen in the news. Um, 
um, people sort of over the age of 70 and people with existing health conditions um, obviously at higher risk in terms of the mortality rate. Um, so, you know, quite an important statement coming out from her. Um, in terms of one of the war quotes that uh, that came out um, from London, the, the keep calm and, and carry on, um, that's been reiterated again, and she will be doing just that. What are your thoughts, Barry? Yeah, again, it's important for her as a public figure to really put on a good face and, and as you say, be with the people as best they can. The, the royal family's always been seen as kind of on their own planets and living in their own little palace and whatnot, and, and they've really made a concerted effort over the last kind of couple of decades to yeah. try and be more relatable and try and be closer to the people. And so it's another example of that. But I agree with you, like, she's at serious risk. So I'm sure there's, there's very, very strict um, controls around her right now. Um, at her age and kind of she's always been very healthy which has been amazing a, a, as a monarch yeah. but um, as you say like there's serious risk for all people here and so I, I wonder what kind of procedures are in place to protect her while she's in London um, and hopefully she keeps speaking out and she keeps reassuring the UK people and keeps them like as, as positive as you can be in this situation. Absolutely. I mean, just if we sort of reiterate that change in messaging, if you look two weeks back on the 3rd of March, um, where there was an investiture at Buckingham Palace, um, she was actually seen wearing gloves. Um, this was sort of first time, I believe, ever. Um, and so those measures obviously kicked in back then. Um, but obviously now the engagements have been called off in, in terms of coming into close contact with others. Uh, it will be worthwhile to see how that develops. Uh, today, we heard a bit more news in terms of the airline's space. Um, obviously, we spoke about the collapse of uh, Flybe last week. Um, and IAG, the parent of British Airways, have announced that they will be grounding around 75% of their flights in April and May. I have a, a booking um, falling within that period uh, with British Airways um, for my half Ironman. Um, it seems pretty much obvious at this stage um, that that could be very well cancelled. Yeah, I think so. I think that we a lot of people are going to lose out on on plane bookings, on theatre bookings, on sports bookings, etc. Um, and I think it's it has to happen. Like the, this kind of social isolation is important, and the the mobility via plane is one of the big reasons this thing spread like it did. Um, and so I'm not surprised by this. I think British Airways is strong enough to survive this kind of this kind yeah. of level at least for a little bit. Um, what I'm more worried about is the much smaller airlines who are likely to go out of business because of this. Well, that's an important point, Barry, and uh, they've actually taken a little bit of a veiled jibe, if you like, um, at Virgin, um, because British Airways, I believe, have about nine billion pounds of cash in reserves, um, and Virgin have actually kind of trying to get some cash out of government. Um, and so they've also kind of followed suit in terms of the grounding of flights. Uh, they are going to be grounding up to 85% of flights if we go up to sort of April and May. Um, and on top of that, which kind of reiterates them asking for cash, um, they've asked their staff to take eight weeks of unpaid leave. Certainly completely unprecedented. What would you do if you're one of those people? It's tough. It's tough. And, and these are the kind of economic impacts that are going to happen in, 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 this, in this circumstance, right? Taking eight weeks of leave, a lot of people, and I would say the vast majority, don't have that kind of resources to be able to do that. They don't yeah. have that rainy day fund to, to live for, for two months without a salary um, or without income. And so it really is going to privilege those people who are wealthier and who are in better positions financially who can survive the storm. But for a lot of people who are living paycheck to paycheck or they've got lots of debts or they've got kids and, and stuff to look after, to have no income for two months is a serious, serious thing. Um, and it's going to have huge economic impacts around the world, especially on the middle class and the lower classes. 
Absolutely. I mean, if we just consider that as a short-term measure, um, British Airways actually coming out and also saying there'll be some some job cuts as well. So, um, you know, if you, if you kind of look at it, um, one may say Virgin um, are actually taking the better approach for for their well-being and for, for people, uh, you know, not, not actually cutting these jobs on a permanent basis. Um, but it's it's really such an interesting one, a bit of a catch-22. Um, one of the other things that happened this past week and actually happened today is that the BBC came out and uh, announced that the TV license imposition for people over the age of 75, um, which was due to take place in June, I believe. And they've now delayed that out to August, um, basically saying that they don't want those people to have one extra thing to worry about. Um, And obviously, if you consider the importance of news and the importance of being in the know, um, a lot of these people are going to be at home, self-isolating, obviously the older generation uh, a little bit more susceptible to, you know, the mortality risk. Um, So that's also an, an interesting uh, statement there. Yeah, it, it's a small thing, but it really talks to the kind of the the situation right now and what's going to happen over the next couple of weeks as people spend a lot of time at home, a lot of time watching the news and watching TV. So I think it's a, it's, it's a small gesture of goodwill, which I'm sure is appreciated. And uh, hopefully we see a lot more of them coming from all companies all around the world. Yeah. In terms of uh, the other things uh, and developments out of the UK, we, we, we're nearly done with the UK. Don't worry. I know it's a, it's a lot to cover. Um, there's sort of suspicion that over 70-year-olds um, in this topic might have to self-isolate for four months, um, a staggering amount of time for, for people and, and certainly a dramatic way uh, to kind of just change their day-to-day lifestyle. Um, that's pretty insane. Um, additionally, uh, there's hints that those who have been confirmed to have this virus may be fined a thousand pounds if they decide not to self-isolate um kind of taking the carrot away and really just replacing with the stick in 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 that case yeah it's interesting i think that a four-month isolation is kind of talks to the previous points by the uk government talking about the timing and whether you get fatigued by that kind of long period of isolation and as we say for over 70s they're a much higher risk of of mortality so it's a it's a it's a real concern there um and, and then talking about the fact that they're going to have to then look after themselves and get supplies and get food and all that good stuff while they're self, yeah. self-isolating um, is, 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 is really, really a strong call. And the fine on then like going out of isolation, I understand it. But at the same time, yeah. I don't know how, if that's going to really deter people. I think if people are going to want to go outside, I think they're going to be willing to put up with it. And uh, so I don't, I don't know how much the fine is going to make a difference. Um, yeah. But again, it's another like tick in the right box saying this is how serious it is, people. So more so than a, f- a financial penalty, it's like a social penalty to saying, listen, these are the things that we need to do to try and stop this virus. And if you're going to go against that, we're going to try and fine you. Absolutely. I mean, in terms of the over 70-year-olds and how they're going to kind of keep themselves going, what we have seen um, in the, I suppose, self-imposed space where communities are actually coming together and uh, communities are actually starting to to look at the the shortfalls, look at the gaps and to try and start to come up with systems. Um, I've seen some interviews with a young lady who's come up with a system um, where she basically has put together a template um, where you kind of fill in um, whether you are available to help out um, for you know various chores, whether it's buying groceries, taking a dog for a walk, whatever the case is, and you just slip your details un- under somebody's door, which basically says, hey, if you're self-isolating, I'm here, I can help, this is what I can do. It's really nice to see things like that coming about, and I'm really sure um, those types of measures are going to make a massive difference to these people. 
That's really cool. I haven't actually heard that. And I think we need a lot more of that compassion going around. Um, I think especially from young people like ourselves who are who are relatively healthy and aren't at a huge risk of, of, of dying from this, yeah. we have to understand that we have to do what we can to help those people who are more vulnerable and who are in, in, in more stress than we are. And so I think it's a great idea. I think if, if we can help the people around us and people that we care about to, to keep supplied and keep, keep making sure that they understand what's going on and also that they have the supplies in order to do this isolation, yeah. that's the kind of small part we can play in it. Exactly. And I mean, uh, the thing in these big urban areas, uh, certainly in London, um, is the majority of the time you won't even know the name of your neighbor, um, which is insane. So after moving to the place that we're staying in now, uh, for the first time ever, we actually know who's living next to and sort of below us, um, which is which is fantastic. Um, but a system like that where you can just fill in a little form and slip it under somebody's door is fantastic because you can literally just go to the spaces around you and, and potentially uh, build a bit of a network for the long term as well, which I, I certainly think is is an important one, especially if we are all going to be self-isolating, going to be away from, uh, you know, social interactions. We, we're going to need, we're going to need them. Um, and so, yeah, this is, this is a good thing to see. Uh, I've also seen WhatsApp groups being formed in certain wards um, in terms of, you know, smaller areas um, to make sure that, you know, anyone else who needs help can kind of just reach out. Um, and so this is also very, very powerful stuff. In terms of those who are very susceptible and those who are in hospitals, um, today it's also come out that the UK are short by 20,000 ventilators. Um, this is obviously considering worst case planning, but a staggering, staggering number, especially if you consider that all of those ventilators that they currently have on hand are produced by one small size entity. Uh, government have now gone to the local car manufacturers like Rolls-Royce, Honda, and even Ford uh, and asked them if they can potentially put some of these ventilators together. Uh, this really feels more like a plea at this stage. Yeah, it has to be because those ventilators are so important. I mean, to remind everyone, like, th that is what's keeping people alive when they have this virus. So if you're going into a hospital and you've got pneumonia, we don't have a vaccine, we don't have a cure for this, so the only thing we can do is give you enough time to f for your immune system to fight it yourself. And so what these ventilators are doing is helping the people with these respiratory infections to, to breathe um, using the machine for as long as possible to give the immune system time to fight the virus. Yeah. And so we need thousands and thousands of ventilators all around the world. And again, it points to like systemic problems with the, the way our global supply chain works is that now they are so reliant on this one manufacturer and there's no diversification when it comes to different companies manufacturing the same products because they've specialized in that one ventilation product. Yeah. And all of a sudden something like this happens and then we don't have enough supply. Um, and so I wonder what's going to happen when it, we look at global supply chains post this coronavirus and look at what can we put in place to try and make sure that this doesn't happen again. Or if it does happen, we're, we're better prepared for it. Because it's, it's crazy that we can't get enough ventilators into these hospitals, especially in a rich yeah. country like the UK. Imagine what's happening around the rest of the world. I completely agree. And the one thing that I hope is not happening is that people are holding on to patents and, uh, you know, all of those kinds of things. I think if there's ever been a time to let go of those sorts of things and those sorts of profit plays, now is the time, um, you know, have your sort of humanitarian uh, hat on um, and just let anyone produce for the sake of you know, life and us surviving through this. Now, we also saw quite a bit of a response out of South Africa. Barry, you are in Johannesburg in South Africa. Take us through what happened and uh, what's been announced. Yes. So in South Africa, we've always been watching this go around the rest of the world for the last couple of weeks, but only in the last two or three days at the time of recording has people really started to take this really seriously. As we sit here today at time of recording, we have 61 cases in South Africa, a majority yeah. across Gauteng, KZN and the Western Cape. 
Um, but we expect those numbers to go much higher over the next couple of weeks. So I think South Africa are right in the beginning period of this. And as a result, Cyril Ramaphosa, the president, came out yesterday and announced via press conference all the various measures they're putting in place to try and stop this outbreak. And I think it's been quite well received because the measures are quite strict and they're quite stark and they really do conform to what the rest of the world is, is thinking when it comes to social distancing. Yeah. And so it was quite reassuring to hear him say the things he said. What is, what is typical of a South African press conference, it started two hours late again. <laughs> so that just happens on all of these things, which I, th I find bizarre every single time. Yeah. Um, but basically, once, once he finally got there, um, he, he finally he made the declaration that it's called a state of national disaster, which is a synonym for national emergency in other, in other jurisdictions, right? So in accordance with that legislation, what that does is it allows funds to be released that were previously kind of ring-fenced for these sorts of things. Yeah. And just, again, kind of reiterates how serious this is for South Africa. Definitely. And kind of the quote that I pulled from, from his speech, Chad, was he said, as we have said before, the current circumstances require extraordinary measures to curb the spread of infections. Countries that have heeded the call to implement these radical measures have fared much better than those who do not. So it's a real proactive move from South Africa, and I think it's been well received here. I think that a lot of this caution is, is, is needed, and especially in South Africa, we're quite early in the process. We've only got 60 cases so far. Um, it's, it's, it's a really radical move. And some of the nitty-gritties there, Chad, um, he's asked for all schools to be closed and all universities to be closed. He's asked for all gatherings of 100 people or more to be stopped or banned. Sure. So that's music concerts, bars, um, stand-up comedy, like everything you can think of that's more than 100 people has been banned. Um, they've banned travel from all the various countries that have the, the highest rates of infection. So that's the UK, yep. it's Italy, it's Iran, it's South Korea, Germany, Spain, China, and the US. Yep. So no travel's allowed to come in from those countries. So they've canceled any visas of people coming in from there. They've also established a national command council to manage this crisis, and they're going to meet three times a week to try and coordinate the response and speak to the, to the country as a whole. Um, and all of these things are being put in place quite suddenly when you think about how the South African press has been talking about this. It's, we've been talking about it as a faraway thing, kind of a thing that's happening around the rest of the world. In very few days, a lot has happened here in South Africa, and I think it's a lot's going to happen over the next couple of weeks. I think we're right in the middle of the first start of the exponential curve here. Absolutely. I mean, I'm a little bit jealous there, if you'd like there, Barry. I mean, you guys aren't even top 10 on the list of infections. Um, like you said, 60 cases in the whole country. Uh, in London alone, there's about 410 cases at the moment. Um, and, you know, we haven't done anything like this yet. Um, cutting the travel, obviously a key one. Um, I think that's incredibly proactive. Look at the nations who have been most effective and, and cut all of that travel out. Um, in terms of you know closing schools, we've obviously spoken about how kids spread viruses and, and how that perpetuates throughout the, the population. Um, and so for me, I think fantastic uh, response there uh, from South Africa. Um, this is, you know, for me, really the way that all leaders should be going. Hopefully everyone else kind of takes note. Um, in terms of the, the, the next thing, and I suppose the, the thing that's really, uh, really important uh, now is, you know, being in South Africa, Barry, what do you think? Do you think this kind of a approaches uh, is actually required at this stage? Do you think it's, it's a little bit too much too soon? Um, do you think you know, this is going to be effective in, in reducing it, or, or, or do you think there's actually going to be a problem still? So I think, it's, I think it's very crucial for us. I think we have to be proactive as a country because we have our own unique constraints and our own struggles here in South Africa. What I'm very wary of and why I'm, I'm quite concerned about this is the fact that the South African public health system is shaky at best. Even at the best of times, we don't have enough doctors, we don't have enough beds, and, and, and the kind of the service and the system doesn't work as well as it should. 
And so what I'm concerned about is if we see the numbers that we're seeing in Italy and the UK and the US and whatnot here in South Africa, is our public health system going to be able to handle that? And what is going to happen to those people who can't get into hospital or can't get into these public services? And yeah. so we have to cut this at the knees as quickly as we can. So this kind of proactive measure is very important because it kind of speaks to the fact that we understand that South Africa is not in the same position as the US or the UK or whatever when it comes to medical support. We don't have as strong a medical support and as strong a medical system. And so whatever happens to us is going to hit us way, way worse than some of the richer countries around the world. And so it's a very important piece of information. I think that as South Africans, we have to take this quite seriously and do our best to ensure that we, we cut the spread as quickly as we can because we can't afford a peak that's going to overwhelm our systems. Absolutely. I mean, especially if you look at the sort of levels of poverty in South Africa as well. Um, you know, how well received do you think it's going to be um, if some sort of lockdown type scenario in terms of the workplaces as well, um, especially because we know a lot of the South African workforce is informal? Um, you know, do you think they're actually going to take this seriously? Yeah, so that, that's the sad thing about this. It's, it's, it's not about whether they take it seriously or not. It's whether they can afford to actually do anything about it, right? Yeah. So the unfortunate fact is that it's going to privilege those people who are in the wealthier tax brackets and are, who are in a position where they can work from home or they can take unpaid leave or they can kind of self-isolate themselves and, and they'll, they'll survive this. But like you say, those people who are in poverty, all the people who are on the borderline of poverty and rely on day-to-day -day work or waged work or kind of um, paycheck-to-paycheck -paycheck work, they might not have the, the flexibility to be able to say, I'm not going to go into work tomorrow because else how am I going to feed my family? Yeah. And so I think in South Africa, we have this, this big struggle where the huge income gap and the in inequality there is going to come into to full sunlight once again and really show that this virus is going to kill a lot more poor people than it's going to kill rich people. And so as South Africans, we have to do our best, no matter where we are on the economic ladder, to stop this in our, in our tracks as best we can to try and save the people who are less vulnerable than us. It's not about saving people like me, like I'm gonna be fine. It's about saving yeah. our fellow South Africans who aren't in the fortunate position to have the kind of resources they need to go and get private healthcare or to be able to work from home or to be able to take two or three weeks without a salary. The vast majority of our population can't do that. And so it's all very well saying no mass gatherings, no shops, no whatever. It doesn't help if you need that money to survive. Um, and so as South Africans, we're going to face a, a big struggle the next couple of weeks. And how we act as citizens and as individuals is going to determine how bad things are going to get. Completely agree there, Barry. Um, one of the other things that I've seen happen is a bit of mis-messaging, really. Um, I've, I've seen it on, on Twitter. Um, I don't know where it comes from, but I think it's worthwhile pointing out and worth chatting about. Um, like you said, I think a lot of these people won't be able to afford uh, isolating themselves for, for two weeks. Um, but on the other hand, uh, a lot of people are being miseducated. I mean, so if you look on Twitter, um, there's been some mentions that certain demographics are, are more immune to this disease. Um, and what I'm really worried about is that a lot of people don't take this seriously enough. A lot of people listen to what they're seeing on Twitter. I mean, I've seen dancers kind of, um, you know, making a joke of, of the situation. Um, and, and, and so I'm worried that that element of it as well, um, you know, results in, in people not going into self-isolation, not practicing care when cleaning their hands and making sure that they don't come into unnecessary contact with other people. And for me, that's really an interesting point. And that's really a point that can make quite a big difference in the spread of this disease um, in those regions. 
Definitely. I think that the misinformation and kind of the propaganda going around is, is terrible, and, and I don't want to condone any of it. I think it's very important that we are very careful about which sources we, we consume our information from and try and get it from the most reliable sources possible. Don't listen to some guy on Twitter who's saying X, Y, or Z, because there's thousands of those conspiracy theories, there's thousands of those things go along, and people yeah. are just profiting off that fear, right? They're profiting off the, the kind of the concern and the uncertainty in, in, in the marketplace. And so I think it's important for all of us to take that information as seriously as we can and think carefully about where we are reading things from and who we are taking advice seriously. When it comes to the dance, I think, Chad, it's actually important to have a little bit of a sense of humor. Like One sure. of the things that makes me love South Africa is that <laughs> when that dance video came out that you're chatting about, so basically what happened was at the press conference, Cyril Ramposa spoke about no handshakes anymore. We must now do this elbow bump thing. And within seconds, it was memed all over the all over the country, and lots of songs about the elbow bump and whatnot. And I think that sense of humor is important. That sense of humor is what's going to get us through these tough times, I think. And as South Africans, I don't want to put a stop to that. I think that that's an important piece of African culture. But it's that fine line, like you say. It's like yeah. taking it seriously enough to actually put the physical health measures in place and wash hands and isolate and whatnot, but also keep your morale up so that you can survive a two, three, four weeks state in isolation if need be. Yeah, completely agree with you there. Moving on to the rest of Europe. Obviously, we've seen the coronavirus spread this side uh, in unprecedented volumes and, and quantities. Um, just me and, and my side in terms of looking at food delivery services, um, the, the major players, we look at Tesco, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Waitrose, all of them have got fully booked out slots uh, up until mid-April, it seems. Um, so that is really concerning for for those elderly people who are at home and, uh, you know, potentially not able to actually go to the, the grocery stores. Um, if we look at a city like Madrid uh, in Spain, um, there's been a video that's been put out by the BBC, um, which shows a stark contrast now that they've got a full lockdown on the city. Um, and for me, anyone who's been to Madrid, I strongly recommend going to watch that. Um, it's truly, truly insane uh, to see how there's literally no one uh, on the streets uh, of a very, very popular city. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Eh? It's kind of weird to see these videos, especially in, in shopping centers or major tourist attractions where there's just no one there. And it shows like what kind of ghost town happens when you put this kind of lockdown on a city. And so I think it shows again how seriously lots of people are taking this. And I think we need to see this around the world. We're going to see lots more of these videos from all these major European cities and, and especially moving into the US and into Africa itself. It's going to become the norm, I think. Yeah, I agree there. Uh, if we look at Ireland and, uh, you know, how important drinking culture is in Ireland, um, we saw following the uh, annual event that is St. Patrick's Day, um, pubs have now been closed. Never thought I would ever say that word. Um, did you, Barry? I didn't. I didn't. And I'm sure that is horrible for all the Irishmen out there yeah. who love St. Paddy's Day. But again, it's important to do it. I think that yeah. uh, pubs are, are especially... Um, virus friendly because people get very loose when they drink and they start patting each other on the back and there's lots of lots of contact and going on in those pubs so I think it's very important and uh, to do it on the St Patrick's Day thing as well is 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 a, is a big step. Now I know somebody who's in Netherlands who I'm actually doing this half Ironman with or thought I was going to do this half Ironman with um, and she's been working from home I was quite surprised because I hadn't really heard anything coming out of Netherlands uh, but if you look at this past weekend and actually yesterday Sunday the number of deaths increased from 4 to 24 20 deaths in one day um, that quite a massive move there 
Yeah, I think the Netherlands are, are at that start of the exponential curve as well. And so they're going to see these numbers start to increase. We've seen very similar trends from all these countries, like especially like China and South Korea. And now into, into the Europe, we're going to get to Italy now. Italy is obviously the worst, the worst affected. And so I think all of these countries, the Netherlands, Ireland, all these guys are just a few days behind Italy. I think they're yeah. going to see the same sort of curves happening. And the Netherlands, it looks that, it looks that way. Absolutely. Well, let's certainly get to Italy. Uh, I mean, obviously, they were kind of uh, the, the most affected by this uh, by this virus in Europe. Um, and uh, yeah, basically, complete lockdowns uh, happening. Uh, you know, initially, they tried to quarantine uh, just the north. Um, but a lot of people kind of fled south. And uh, it still is, is there still is our worries that, uh, you know, the virus moves more south. Um, what are some of the things you've seen and, and, and heard of in Italy, Barry? Yeah, so some, some really sad stuff coming out of Italy at the moment. I think that at the moment they're facing huge death numbers. They're seeing hundreds of deaths a day. So not, yep. not 10, not 20, hundreds of deaths every single day. And their health system is completely overwhelmed. So reading things by Italian doctors and Italian healthcare people, they don't have the resources or the facilities to deal with all the new infections that are coming every single day. Yeah. And that, that obviously plays on the minds of the nurses and the doctors and stuff who are working in those environments. And psychologically, not being able to help people they want to be able to help is really, really tough. And so I think Italy is is in a really, really tough space at the moment. And we need to look at Italy seriously as kind of an example of what can happen if you don't take this thing seriously enough. Um, for, for everyone in Italy, we our thoughts are with you. And uh, yeah, it's a tough situation right there. Yeah, I mean, let's not forget Italy, also one of those countries that uh, have have been plagued with a bit of a corrupt government in the past as well. And so on top of this, um, with a country that's been robbed of uh, public money, um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see on a financial level as well what, what happens with them uh, in the next coming months. Um, also, in terms of Spain, we obviously just chatted a little bit about Madrid. Uh, there's been a thousand cases increased in the last 24 hours. This just talks to that exponential um, growth that we've just been reiterating throughout this episode. Uh, if we look at Germany, they have closed their border to day um, with five countries. Um, Emmanuel Macron in terms of France uh, to address the public this evening um, because also a lot of people think that France and uh, you know massive city that is Paris that currently has a lot of people still wandering the streets although the Louvre is closed and although the Eiffel Tower is closed um, a lot of way needs to be made there as well. Yeah, I think we we've seen the same pattern across all of these countries, and, and Paris is obviously a huge tourist destination. So again, it's it, it's a big deal here, and Germany closing the border is is par for the course. And so I think the whole of Europe is dealing with this in their own in their own way and trying to to monitor it as best as they can. Um, I think a lot of the European travel is completely closed down now, and people are going to have to stick where they are and just try and survive wherever they are. Um, and Europe is really in the in the fire hose at the moment. They really are in in the center of the storm. And uh, so we're going to hope to see improvements there, and hopefully they can, we can learn some of the lessons from Asia and um, that has kind of stabilized that situation a little bit yeah. and apply it to a European context. But moving on from Europe, Chad, I think we should get to the States. Um, so yeah, we've, we've, we've looked at South Africa, we've looked at the UK, we've looked at the rest of Europe. Moving on to the United States of America, which is obviously a huge player in this and uh, have been criticized heavily for not reacting quick enough to this thing. Um, the Federal Reserve announced an emergency rate cut, similar to what we saw in the, sta in, in, in the UK, sorry, and yeah. they cut rates by 100 basis points, right? And this was not like a regular cut at all. It's completely emergency. It was done on a proactive basis. And it's, again, it's, it's a, try, a measure to try and stimulate the economy to ensure that we, we try and contain the bloodbath we're seeing across the stock market and across the, yeah. the general economic landscape. Absolutely. I mean, like you said, this was a proactive measure. Uh, the interesting thing that I took out of this 
um, is that this happened a few days before they were actually due to meet. Um, they have a six-weekly cycle to to meet and, and kind of decide whether they're, they're keeping rates the same. I also believe this is the second cut that they've done in recent times. Um, and as part of this, I believe they've also done a 700 billion dollar stimulus plan um, and even with all of those things in place we've still seen that bloodbath today really fascinating um, it looks like there's there's nothing really that a government can do uh, that's going to be enough to put the worries of investors to ease yep i think the bloodbath will continue and and like you say it's, it's a huge amount of money it's a huge amount of, of of stimulus to be pumped into an economy but with the size of the economy of the u.s and kind of the the breadth of it it's 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 a huge huge marketplace and so it's it's definitely the only lever these guys can pull, and hopefully it's gonna gonna kind of stem the the bleeding a little bit. Um, but like you say, a government can't stop this. It's it's one of those it, one of these global pandemics is gonna impact every single market, and all you can do is try and limit your downside where possible. Yeah, Chad, we saw we saw Donald Trump turning around and and kind of changing his tune on this very very quickly. He's now announced <laughs> a travel ban on 26 EU countries, including the UK, which kicks yep. in tomorrow, the day after we record this. So obviously trying to stop travel coming in. I've seen some terrifying videos of US airports with people waiting five to six hours to fetch their bags and go through the health screening and whatnot to get in or out of the country. And so I think yep. if, you, if you're trying to get home from, from elsewhere in the US, you're really having a trouble getting into the country at this stage. Which is insane. I mean, just picture yourself being in the shoes of one of those people um, where, you know, you were maybe there on a holiday or you're actually there on business, whatever the case is. Um, now it's time to come home. You're going to be coming home to a place where you are not going to be able to go into work as usual. Um, and now you're not even sure if you can get there. Um, what do you do? Uh, you know, if we, if we look at just the loss of earnings uh, during a, a self-quarantine period, especially if you're self-employed or whatever the case is, um, now you've actually got to put yourself up in the U.S. for who knows how long, um, really, really dire straits for anyone who's, who's in that position. Yeah, definitely. And those are sort of the, like the, the micro things we don't often think about when we chat about these topics. We, th we think about the deaths, we think about like the economic impacts. Yep. We don't think about simple anecdotes like that, as someone stuck somewhere or stranded somewhere where they shouldn't be. Um, and, and that really does play, play a role in how panicked people are about this and how desperately they're trying to get back home before these bans are fully in place. And unfortunately, the ship has sailed. I think for a lot of the countries around the world, yeah. these travel bans are going to be in place for a while. And so you basically are stuck where you are, and you've got to do the best with what you can while you're there. In the U.S., we've seen kind of the same trend we've seen around the world, events being canceled left, right, and center. Some yeah. of the big ones, the NBA was canceled, which is the basketball league there, which is a huge deal. All the major music concerts, stand-up comedy shows. In New York and Los Angeles, they've closed bars and restaurants because there's lots yep. of people mingling there. And so the U.S. is going into a proper shutdown now as well. Um, I, I see, Chad, that two-thirds of the state schools have been closed yep. as well. Yeah, so I mean, I don't know if this is uh, an official number. I don't know if this has been mandated by Trump, um, but it looks like in basically two thirds of the states, um, you know, these schools have kind of taken upon themselves to to close down, um, which is which is really interesting. Um, there's also that significant shortage of testing kits that we've we've spoken about across the globe. Um, I've seen images from Denver, Colorado, of cars just lined up, and I've literally never seen anything like this um, of people wanting to get tested. Um, which is absolutely fascinating. Uh, obviously, they have a different testing policy than the UK, um, but it looks like, you know, as we've as we mentioned, there's just not enough kits to go around. 
Yep, and, and there's a lot of criticism being being hurled at, at President Trump and kind of the, the administration for not preparing for this. Having watched things happen in China, having watched things happen in Italy, and not having enough testing kits for Americans, I think America is very angry right now because they're in the midst of this, and I think that the numbers are going to be way worse than they're currently being reported because, as we say, we don't have enough testing kits. Yeah, absolutely. Really, really worrying there. Hopefully one of these giant manufacturers can just come up with these tests and, and sort of spread them across the globe on a massive level. Now, talking about that, we've obviously spoken a little bit about Asia and what's happened there and some positive news really coming out. Um, let's talk a little bit about that, Barry. Um, there's been some strict social distancing happening across that side, um, various other measures as well. And uh, these have really shown uh, to be effective um, in you know, reducing the number of day-to-day -day cases. Um, we've actually seen a dip in that graph. Yeah, it, it, it's really, really good news. And, and it really gives me hope that we can actually beat this thing, is that Asia, obviously, they, that's where it started and that's where they first were dealing with it. And so the countries we're chatting about here is China, it's Hong Kong, it's South Korea, it's Singapore, it's Japan, those sort of nations. And they have put like strict, strict measures in place to try and stop it. And they've actually stabilized the situation there. So like you say, day by day, they're having fewer new cases every single day. It's not to say it's been beaten at any stage of the imagination, right? Yeah. It definitely hasn't because once you stop isolating, you go back into the real world, the cases will increase again. But what they've managed to do is slow down that spread and slow down the infections. And that's all you're trying to do here. You're not trying to kill it at its, its knees. You're trying to slow it down as best you can. And so yeah. hopefully we can learn from what's happened in Asia, especially in South Korea and those places, and apply it in our own jurisdictions to try and learn from the mistakes of them. Absolutely. I mean, like you said, that's just really, really promising stuff to see. Uh, one of the other things, and one of the other things that uh, a lot of people have been wondering about is obviously the Olympics. The Olympics due to take place later this year in Tokyo in Japan. And uh, it looks like the committee is actually going to finally get together tomorrow, Tuesday, um, to have some talks. Um, I mean, at this rate, it looks highly unlikely that this is going to actually take place in August. Yeah, I, I can't see it happening. Um, even though the Olympics is super important and whatnot, it's too big an event, especially in this kind of climate, to, to actually make it work. So I don't see the Olympics going ahead. But again, it's trying to understand what does that mean for the economy of Tokyo who's been preparing for this for years now, getting ready to host this event. What happens to all those people who've spent all this money, invested all this time and effort, and then the thing doesn't happen? So they've got, they've got some big decisions to make as to what they're going to do with that Olympics and are they going to postpone it? cancelled it altogether? Are they going to try a smaller thing? Are they going to try a different location? I don't know what's going to happen there. Absolutely. Well, we'll certainly have to see. Um, something as important as that is, is certainly going to have a lot of uh, implications for all those people who were going to travel uh, and, uh, you know, go and actually see the Olympics, obviously bought tickets, bought, uh, you know, accommodation, flights, all of that kind of thing. What happens to them uh, in that case? We'll certainly have to see. Now that we've covered all of the various parts of the globe in terms of what has actually happened this past week, uh, I just really wanted to chat about what happened in my inbox on Friday. Something happened where all of the sort of stars aligned and every single company who I had been subscribed to, whether, you know, recently or years back, um, just started, felt the need to send an email addressing COVID-19, addressing the coronavirus. Um, I mean, this includes the gym that I go to, cinemas, uh, the Ironman organization, the body shop even, uh, a restaurant chain, you know, treat well when you need to get your hair cut, Psyca, the uh, South African Institute for Chartered Accountants, uh, even pharmacies. Um, and all that I pulled from this is really that all these companies just felt they had to say something. Uh, these emails were just 
bloated with nothingness, as in my opinion. Everyone said that they were caring for their people and just following the guidelines that were set out by the World Health Organization. But I didn't pick too much more of use from that. Barry, did you get these and what were your opinions on them? Yeah, I got I got plenty of them. Every single person, every single company who's I'm on the emailing mailing list for sent me their opinion on it, right? And so I think it's one of those things where because it's dominating the world's conversation so much, they feel like they have to say something. Yeah. And in in a lot of instances, they're not in a position to say much of substance because they're not health organizations or they're not actually yeah. involved in a, in a direct way. And so it's one of those things where they feel the need to communicate with their customer base or their user base to try and kind of just make sure that they, that the customers know that they are thinking of them. Um, but they can come across as a bit insensitive. I think it's unlucky when you've got 20 in your inbox because you, you become a bit desensitized <laughs> to them because um, everyone's trying to do the same thing. And it becomes a bit transparent. Absolutely, completely agree with you there. Uh, that is all of our week that was for the coronavirus. That was a lot to say. Hopefully you're still tuned in and listening and still keen to hear everything else. Uh, what else happened this week, Barry, specifically uh, regarding the conversation we had in the data space in South Africa and the, the prices of, of mobile data? What happened? Yeah, so we couldn't leave this out. We're like, we were chatting about a lot about coronavirus. We couldn't leave this out because we chatted about it in the past. And there was a huge thing happened here in South Africa where the Competition Commission settled with Vodacom, which is the biggest cell phone provider here in South Africa. Yeah. And the settlement means that Vodacom have been mandated to slash their data costs by 30%. Wow. Effects of the 1st of April, 2020. So okay. that is a huge win for us South Africans who are paying way too much for our data already. Yeah. So 30% cuts across the board. Um, basically, what they've come out and said is that the people buying the smaller bundles so the, the yeah. poorer population are going to benefit more on a, on a kind of percentage basis than people buying sure. bigger bundles. But basically all it's doing is it's, it's cutting that price and it's it's really trying to even that playing field a bit and trying to bring it more into global standards. So I still think our data is being more expensive than elsewhere, but it's a step in the right direction. And for someone like Vodacom to cut by 30% means that all the other competitors will have to follow as well. So yeah, so yeah hope, hopefully that's a, hope that's a good thing and it's a, it's a, good, a sign of good news for us. Absolutely. I mean, every little bit counts and anything that can be done to um, split some of the segregation in terms of the, the poverty crisis in, in South Africa and hopefully a lot more of those uh, you know, poorer communities are now actually able to access the internet um, and, and start to grow, um, which, is, which is fantastic news. Um, in terms of you know, one little step forward as well, we spoke about Harvey Weinstein getting convicted of rape and assault a few weeks ago. Um, and you know, we, we kind of chatted about the sentence and, and that was due to happen, gave a bit of a blanket range for, for what we might see. And what we've actually seen is the top end of that range. Uh, I'm quite impressed by this. He's been sentenced to 23 years in prison. Uh, certainly a, a massive victory for, for humanity. Yep, and that's just a precedent going forward for how sexual harassment is going to be taken, uh, how seriously it's going to be taken. So I'm really glad to see it. I think that it's, it's, a, it's good for our, for our culture and for society. Um, it's certainly a win for the Me Too movement, and, and hopefully this yeah. kind of sets the bar that we do not accept this, we do not condone this behavior, and it's, it's a step in the right direction, as you say, towards a better future. Absolutely. Let's move on to our next segment. Stuff I Found Interesting. All right, so we got one topic today, and uh, it's coronavirus, of course. And so we, we try to take a, a more light-hearted approach for this segment, Chad. And we're going to talk about 
quite an amusing thing that happened in the stock market. So obviously everyone's trying to understand here what's happening to the stock market and how do we save money or how do we actually profit from all this panic. And one of the big companies that are, that are really winning is a company called Zoom, which does video conferencing. So with a lot of people working from home or not going into meetings and whatnot, people will be using yeah. Zoom and Skype and these sorts of things a lot more, right? Definitely. And so some smart people decided, oh, it's actually a good time to buy Zoom stock because their usage is going to go up exponentially over the next couple of months. And so maybe it's a good stock to buy. The unfortunate thing is that on the on the New York Stock Exchange, there are actually two companies called Zoom. <laughs> and so what happened was that the company, Zoom Technologies, which is not the uh. company that provides the video conferencing software, but is a completely different company, they saw their stock price double in, in, in the space of a few days um, because people were buying the wrong Zoom. And so I thought that was quite amusing. It shows how little effort people actually make in these investment decisions. It's all based on emotion. They want to buy Zoom as quickly as possible. They don't even check it's the right company. Um, and so this little known Zoom company saw their share price double for no reason whatsoever other than their name is Zoom. Oh, that is absolutely amazing. Uh, really, really funny. Uh, I mean, obviously, those who, who bought those shares um, after finding this out, obviously not too pleased. But I mean, out of interest, what is it that the other Zoom does? Yeah, so the lucky Zoom company that found their share price doubling is actually a tiny little Chinese wireless communications company that doesn't have any significant operations, really. So it's a very, very oh, wow. small, random company that obviously got the shock of their life when they saw their stock price go up the way it has. Yeah, I mean, an easy mistake to make, uh, obviously, is Zoom technology still being a technology company. Um, so it just shows you how important it is to do your research um, on that one. And, and certainly, if you are in that state of just kind of panic selling everything you have in your portfolio, um, it's certainly even more important now to uh, take that extra effort and uh, make sure you're buying the right thing. Let's move on and let's look ahead. Looking ahead. Right, so I mean, a lot of our episodes so far has been looking behind, uh, and so it's it's only that natural chain of progression where we actually look to the future. Obviously, a whole topic uh, because coronavirus is everything that we're talking about this week. Um, but yeah, Barry, you told me this really interesting story just before the call, really, um, about a story where some piece of wearable technology has actually been able to alert somebody um, of a, a little bit something not right. Talk us through it. Yeah, so we've been chatting about how these tests are not available and a lot of people aren't aware they have the virus, right? And so I saw this tweet from a guy called David Frankel in the US. And he made a tweet saying he has the virus, right? So he's found out post this tweet that he actually has the virus. And what he said was that his aura ring, which is one of those wearable rings that kind of measures heart rate variability and whatnot, and his whoop strap, which is one of those smart watches that measure fitness activity and, and, and all those good things, those two devices actually spotted his temperature, so his fever and his restlessness symptoms before the actual flu symptoms arrived. So way before he knew he had the coronavirus, his wearable technology was telling him something's not quite right. And that early precaution really was important in him going to get tested and finding out he actually has the disease. Wow. So I think it's quite interesting to look at the future of Post this little scare, this coronavirus, how are we going to have precautions in place going forward to actually make sure we, we avoid these problems in the future? And so maybe these wearables are the future. And so in this tweet, Chad, he talks about two potential things you can see in the future. And so I want to get your thoughts on them. The first one, he says that 
do you think it's out of the realm of possibility to think that companies may require employees to measure device to wear devices that measure biometrics as a precondition of employment? So can you see a future where everyone is required to wear some sort of wearable that monitors their health on an ongoing basis to, to enable people to use data to kind of spot things before they become problems? I think it's very possible, to be completely honest. I mean, I was at a dinner table the other night of... Uh, a partner to somebody who works at uh, ESCOM's Kuberg plant, um, which is obviously the nuclear plant. Um, and every single employee, when checking in for work every day, has to get a breathalyzer test done. Obviously, given the nature of what it is that they work on, you don't want any silly mistakes being made. Um, and so for me, if, if that's possible, um, I certainly feel like it's possible to, to have this as well. I mean, it is a really scary thought um, because a lot of our data, a lot of our, our privacy, you know, there is that veil that we, we hold our personal life and our personal things behind of. Um, so for me, it is, it's possible, but it is scary. Um, you wouldn't want your employer necessarily knowing um, every single little bit about you. It sounds a bit like a Black Mirror episode in, in, in a way, right? Yeah. And so it's one of those definitely. things where it's, it's a future we, c we, can, we can think about and, and definitely we can see the value if, if we are able to predict ahead of time. But it's what happens in the 99% of other cases where that data can be used for other things. And that's a, it's a recurring theme we've had on this show going on and on. And taking this idea a little bit further, one step further, um, he kind of says in the second part of his tweet, with everyone trying to think about using um, incentives and insurance policies, right? So insurance companies want you to wear wearable technology to try and track your health, to get you cheaper insurance policies and ensure that you're taking care of yourself as a consumer. What happens if all of a sudden employees do the same thing? And for example, Chad, if you have, an high, if you have a high fever or a temperature on your app, all of a sudden your key card at your work doesn't work because they want you to stay away from the office. So those kind of precautions could be put in place if they have access to that sort of data. So I think it's an interesting look at what the future could look like if we're trying to prepare for these kind of pandemics. What if we have technology on our bodies at all times, measuring all of our, our vital, um, vital signs and whatnot? What does that mean for the future of data and the future of precaution, basically? I mean, like we discussed, obviously, the, the privacy piece comes up over and over again. But I mean, I think something like that, where your key card doesn't allow you access to the building, uh, is actually a step forward. Um, I have been at work a lot of times where, you know, I've just been made sick by those who refuse to take sick leave um, because you sometimes in some companies find this culture where people don't feel like they can actually stay at home or they don't even feel like they can work from home um, and, and, you know, still be productive, but not be in at the office. I mean, so I think a lot of managers and, uh, you know, a lot of companies have allowed uh, the, this other kind of narrative to happen in the background. Um, and if you've got something like this, which actually just refuses entry to the building, um, that could actually make a little bit of progress as well. So I suppose we always have to look at, at both sides of the argument. Um, and yeah, a fascinating, fascinating little piece of thought work over there. Let's move on to our next section. Develop and grow. Right, so on Develop and Grow this week, surprise, surprise, we're talking about the coronavirus. And so we're going to talk about it from an individual perspective now. We've chatted about the macroeconomic impacts and how what's happening around the world and how we can try and stop it as a global civilization. But now let's bring it back to an individual level. What can you do as an individual to ensure you don't spread the disease and to look after yourself and those you care about? The first thing and the most important piece of health advice here is to wash your hands as often as possible, right? And wash them enthusiastically as for as long as possible. That is the best thing you can do to try and stop this 
effects of the disease. Yep. And the second piece is don't touch your face as often as you, sh- as you as we normally do. Now, this is incredibly hard. I found it very hard, like being conscious of the f- amount of times I touch my face. Um, but if you just do those two things, wash your hands often and don't touch your face, that is the best first step in, in, uh, that's possible in the health space. Yeah, it sounds like something so silly. Like like you said, it's it's the absolute basics. Um, but something like washing your hands, it's, it's not just about washing your hands. It's about washing your hands thoroughly uh, and often. So the guidelines that I've heard on the side are sort of 20 seconds. Um, we saw Brandon Flowers of The Killers uh, putting up a little video of him singing Mr. Brightside uh, for, I think, about that period of time uh, while doing it. And whatever method you do, um, you know, Put some way uh, of you knowing how long you're washing your your hands. Um, And then the second thing in terms of not touching your face, this is something that's kind of ingrained. It's built into us. I watched a a very interesting video um, that speaks about fetuses and even fetuses touch their face. Um, A lot of the reasons why we do this is actually to, uh, to sort of trigger various responses in our body and a lot of the times we're doing it is actually to to calm down. Um, So it's kind of one of those where we we all feeling very anxious. We're all probably subconsciously on a subconscious level want to want to touch our faces more and we want to to trigger that release of whatever chemical it is that that triggers um you know that response in our body um, but we kind of do need to to keep to this uh, advice because it's the touching of the hands and then touching the face um, that leads it to get into into our body and, and ultimately spread barry what else on the physical health piece would you have to say yeah, so I think it's worth reminding ourselves what the objective is here. We're not trying to kill this virus. What we're trying to do is slow the spread down, right? So a vaccine is months away, and so we're going to be managing the situation for a while. And so because we need to build this immunity and it's going to happen over a long period of time, it's about managing the spread and protecting those people who are more vulnerable than you. So social distancing is very important, especially for young, healthy people who don't think they have the virus. Even if you don't have the symptoms, it's important to limit your contact with other people, at least for the short term. Because what happens is that a lot of people have the virus, but they don't know they have it. And so they inadvertently transfer to people who are at a higher risk of dying from it because either they're older or they have... Uh, pre-existing health conditions, etc. So it's incumbent on all of us, even if you feel healthy, even if you think that you don't have it, even if you have no reason to think you haven't come to contact anyone from overseas or any of that stuff, please, please distance yourself from other people and, and cut down your social engagements as best you can. Try and take it as seriously as possible and by isolating yourself that by in that way, you do your part to avoid transferring that disease because you're not sure you don't have it. Absolutely, and that's the that's the really interesting thing here is that uh, that period with which we, you don't show any symptoms. Some people say it could be as much as ten days, um, which is really really fascinating. In terms of that vaccine, I've even seen reports saying that uh, some people think it might be up to a year. Um, so you know, I completely agree with you there. We're going to be managing with this in the short term for for a long period of time. Um, and so those two key things, washing your hands and not touching your face, um, obviously paramount. I also wanted to talk about the masks. Um, we've seen. A lot of people wearing masks and uh, the general consensus here is that the masks are not any help unless uh, you have the disease yourself and you're actually protecting others from getting it um, a lot of the time when you've got this thing on your face it's actually going to encourage you to to you know move it around and, and actually touch your face more often than what you would and so you're actually increasing the risk in some cases by wearing a mask um, if you obviously have it then you know it's, it's a good idea to wear one um, but other than that I've also seen you know a lot of people uh, taking some 
supplies out of uh, of these masks and and people who really need them, uh, like uh, the hospital workers and people on the firing line, um, you know, might actually run out of supplies. So I think that's also something worth mentioning. Now, moving on to mental health, one of the other things we we typically talk about on this podcast, uh, Barry, what are some of the pointers you think we should note from that? Yeah, so if you're going to be taking isolating seriously, it's obviously a big change to your normal day-to-day life. And so you have to think about what is the psychological impact on you as a person. And the most important thing here is is not to panic. And I know this whole episode we've been chatting about dark things and dangerous things, and we're chatting about the concerns we have for the world. It's very important that we don't panic and understand that we are in this global fight as a species, as as the human race, and that we have all the resources at our disposal to manage the spread and to manage the pandemic and hopefully becomes just another footnote in history. So... uh, I said a little bit earlier that a little bit of panic is good, and I still think that's the case because it forces you to take things seriously. But it's important not to get paranoid and not to like lose yourself in all of this stuff. Uh, I, I saw quite a cool term, Chad, saying be alert, not anxious. And I quite yeah. like that. Like, Let's think about this. Let's not be anxious about it and worry about every single thing we touch or every single thing that happens in our life. But let's be alert and actually monitor how we are acting in our day-to-day lives and what we're doing and how can we best follow the advice from the World Health Organization and other related organizations to do our part. Be alert, not anxious. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think this is a really, really important piece to talk about, um, especially because people are going to be at home for for weeks on end. Um, Something I've found I've really struggled with um, is staying away from that constant feed of news. Um, I literally this whole morning have just been watching the news nonstop, um, including from last night as well. Um, and so it is important uh, from all of the advice that I've been hearing from, from various people in the space um, to pull yourself away from it and only check in maybe once a day, um, once or twice a day, sort of pick some times and, and try and stick to that because other than, otherwise it, it does really just become this constant tap that's just flowing at you. Um, it can become quite overwhelming. Obviously, it's something that on the whole we can't really control. Uh, you know, it's, it's an external thing to you and me. Um, so, you know, a lot of the time we, we can feel out of control and, and feel overwhelmed by the situation. Um, and so I think that's also important uh, and something that I'm going to need to be working on as well is, uh, you know, sort of just stepping away from that constant feed of information. Yeah, it's a very important point, and it, it can become all-encompassing very, very quickly if you get pulled into these rabbit holes. And obviously, like us doing this long podcast is not helping that situation at all, right? <laughs> but it's, it's, it's kind of one of those things where it's important to keep up to date with what's going on, that that is important. But pick your times, like Chad said, pick your times maybe once or twice a day, maybe the beginning and the end of the day to look up various news and focus on reputable sources. Don't spend three, four hours scrolling through Twitter and taking that as the gospel. Like, go to the actual websites of the important health organizations and get your information from there because those websites are most likely to have the least amount of emotion and paranoia and just the most hard facts because that's what you're looking for. You're looking for facts here that helps you make decisions going forward. And once you've you've done that, once you've done those checks, go and live the rest of your life and use that quality, use that quarantine time for doing something productive or something creative, which is what we're going to come to next. Something called Quality Quarantine Time, QQT. <laughs> it's one of my favorite acronyms that, uh, that has come out of this whole thing. Yeah. And basically, it's talking about the fact, Chad, that we're going to have lots of time at home by ourselves or in, in small groups and family members and whatnot. Time to do things that we n- wouldn't normally have the time to do. So what could you do with this time if instead of going to work for eight, nine hours a day, if you're able to stay home and, you, and you've got this time on your hands, can you be creative with it? Can you actually turn it into something productive? 
And why I think this is quite important is that I've seen lots of articles recently about talking about the fact that a lot of famous people have taken these quarantine times over history and done really amazing things. For example, during the Black Plague, Shakespeare went into quarantine, and he, in, in quarantine, he wrote the plays King Lear, Macbeth, oh, wow. and Antony and Cleopatra, wow. which are three of the most amazing plays ever written by, by a human, right? And so he did that in quarantine. Isaac Newton, also while in quarantine from one of the pandemics of the past, created calculus, which is one of the most influential pieces of mathematics ever. Yeah. And so if we can take a leaf out of these guys' book and actually turn this time into productive, creative time, I think we could get a lot done during this time, Chad. Barry, you make my next little point feel so silly and so stupid. If uh, Isaac Newton came up with calculus while he was in quarantine, then why me when I was at home yesterday, and not really quarantine, but uh, let's just call it that anyway, um, I, I kind of wanted to brag about a little bit of DIY I did, um, but I think that completely pales in comparison. Um, I, yeah, just basically did a little bit of DIY yesterday, and I think that's a really cool little creative thing that, that people can do as well while being at home. Um, so we had this um, area of dead space behind our couch, um, and essentially, I put together a custom-made unit um, that sits in there and, and kind of doubles up as, as a display shelf. Um, but I've also put a motor inside um, that then the shelf can essentially lift up um, and you can kind of store stuff inside it. So I thought that was quite cool, um, but clearly not as cool as, as Shakespeare or Newton. Don't say yourself short, Chad. I think it's a great <laughs> example of what to do with QQT. Um, I think that it's, you know, we, we're not all trying to write the next great novel. We're not all trying to solve the world's problems. Maybe it's just a blog you wanted to start or a short story you thought about writing or you wanted to start learning the guitar or you wanted to build, the, build something in your house. Yeah. All of these things are great, are great uses of your time. And so try and turn this into a positive. All of this time you have available, time is such a scarce resource. And so if you think about it, it's almost a blessing to be given all of this free unencumbered time to sit at home and think more deeply about things or think about a career change or think about things you wouldn't have the time to normally yeah. do. And so all I'm saying is use this time creatively and productively. Don't just sit there and watch Netflix for the next 38 days, right? <laughs> Actually try and use this time in a way that, that can help you going forward and in your long-term prospects and pick up a hobby, pick up something you never want to do or read books. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is one of those things where when you're in the day-to-day the -day hustle of, of busy life, um, you wish you had an hour to spare. And now that you're kind of thrown a whole bunch of it, um, you, you, you hate it. You kind of, you're like, what do I do? Um, and you're right. I think we need to put ourselves back in that headspace of, of when we were super busy and we, we craved that extra hour and, and, and treat our time as if we were in that headspace uh, rather being in that of, oh, we've got so much time and nothing to do. Um, yeah, so an interesting point there. And uh, yeah, definitely let's do that. Moving on to our next segment. What's on your mind? So what's on your mind? Last week, we said that uh, we had no questions. Um, we were worried whether people were in quarantine and you know thought they, they might get it if they send us a question. And, and on the back of it, this week, we've had a little bit of overcompensation. We've got four questions, Barry. Four questions. Can you believe it? <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. I, I, I went into my Instagram and I said to everybody, listen, guys, we're doing a coronavirus episode. If you have anything you want us to cover, shout. And I got lots of lots of feedback. So thank you amazing. so much for everyone who sent questions in. Uh, a reminder that every single week we, we, ex we receive questions. So please send through on whatever topic. Obviously, today is coronavirus, but any topic you'd like to have your question yeah. answered, we'll do our best. We're not experts, but we'll have a go. Absolutely. Well, let's take it from the top. We've, uh, we've essentially got all these four questions in, in written format. So no voice, no 
notes today. But uh, yeah, let's let's take them one at a time. So the first one, thank you very much for your questions in advance as well. Uh, the first one is from Jess. Uh, Jess says, any idea why the name changed from coronavirus to COVID-19? Um, and yeah, this is, uh, I, I suppose, a change in messaging really, um, more than anything else. Um, certainly seems a lot more serious, this uh, COVID-19. Um, and I mean, right at the beginning, it, it was one of those where, you know, people were, they were trying to come up with a name and they actually, you know, like the other cases of coronaviruses, like the SARS, and they actually just didn't and kind of kept to the scientific one. Quite an interesting one. Don't you agree, Barry? Yeah, definitely. It definitely flummoxed me for a bit because I couldn't understand why we're talking about two different things in some cases. Yeah. But basically how it works is that after reading up about this myself, um, the coronavirus is actually a family of viruses. So there are tons of different yeah. coronaviruses. And yeah. so it's kind of a category of viruses more so than one particular strain. And so in order to differentiate it from other strains in the past, th there was then named COVID-19, which is kind of just the, the name of this particular strain. So it is, in essence, it means the same thing whether you talk about it in either way, because at the moment there's only one coronavirus that is currently quite, quite prevalent, and that's COVID-19. Um, but like you say, Chad, the scientific name sounds a lot scarier than just a coronavirus. Absolutely. Uh, it, it certainly does. And uh, I mean, I think it's one of those where th I think there were committees of people coming together to come up with the name that was, you know, short, concise, uh, yet um, contained all of the, I mean, you know, SARS being severe acute respiratory syndrome, uh, you know, kind of covering all of the bases. And uh, we just haven't seen that. Um, so COVID-19 it is. Um, moving on to the next question from Ryan, uh, which is hand washing is obviously a good habit, but will it stop the spread of airborne virus? Um, Barry, what, what do you think of this? Yeah, so this is an, another important piece of education we need to be sharing with people and everyone needs to understand is that rightly so, this is an airborne virus. It's spread by droplets that come when you sneeze or you cough or whatnot for someone who has the virus. But what happens is that these, these, this virus can actually live outside of a human body. So for example, if you sneeze and some of the droplets land on a handrail or on a doorknob or on a countertop or something, someone can then come across even days later and put their hands down there. And if they then transfer that to their eyes or their mouth or they touch their face in some way, they can then contract the virus. So why hand washing is so important is that it tries to avoid that sort of transmission, so an indirect transmission. Yeah. What, what hand washing tries to do is when you, when you use soap to wash your hands, it creates a fatty layer that on, on your hands that dissolves the way that the virus attaches itself to your skin. So that's why it's important to do it for 20 seconds or more to try and make sure you get that fatty layer going on your hands to, to dislodge that virus, and then you wash it away off your hands. And so the more hand washing we do, the less chance you have of picking it up from a doorknob or a, uh, a fridge or a, some sort of um, surface that you've touched that someone else or the virus has also touched. Does that make sense, Chad? Yeah, I absolutely agree with you there, Barry. I think the, the interesting point and, and kind of a tail piece of his question, um, which is uh, the, the point of the spread of airborne virus, I think important to note that this, as far as I know, is not an airborne virus. You're not going to walk into a room um, and, you know, kind of just inhale the air and all of a sudden you have it. Um, it's like you said, you've got to touch something um, that it's actually sat on. As far as I know, it can't just kind of float in the air. Um, and so and so that's a very interesting point that uh, that you made over there. Um, moving on to the next question. This one is from Dominique. Uh, Dominique, I believe you listen every week. So thanks for that and thanks for your question. Um, and she says, I was recently denied entry into Thailand due to holding an Italian passport, even though I live in the UK and had not been to Italy in over a year. Before I left Heathrow, I was asked if I had 
travel to Italy? And I said no. While on the flight at 12 a.m., the immigration law changed, denying all Italian passport holders into the country. When I got off the plane in Thailand, there were staff waiting with my name on a board. They had already booked me on a flight back to Heathrow within an hour. They refused to look at my passport and I was escorted onto the flight back. I understand that COVID-19 is very serious, but the law changed while in the air and I had no pre-warning of the matter. It's gotten to the point where things are changing hourly and airlines and travel companies are not able to keep up. Would love to hear your thoughts. This is an absolutely insane story. Um, I, I, can't, I can't even put myself in her shoes. Um, imagine just going from, from UK to Thailand. That must be a, a massive journey. Um, to only to arrive and then be sent on a plane back um absolutely insane barry what are your thoughts on it yeah it's crazy and it kind of talks to the how things are moving so quickly and that this can happen while you're in the air like you say like at, at one stage you on the on the flight you've got no connection with italy whatsoever and while you're in the air you're you're you arrive and they change the rules on you and they send you all the way back after you've already spent all the money i'm assuming on accommodation and all that good stuff um, and so, again, it shows that things are changing day by day, hour by hour. And to keep up with everything is, is a really, really tough job. And so I think for anyone who's traveling at the moment, you have to take into account that things can change on a, on a minute by minute basis. Um, and to see them taking this kind of thing, just taking the Italian passport as proof enough that you've been into Italy and ignoring you completely, that's quite a drastic step. Yeah, I completely agree that it's a, a drastic step. Um, but I mean, what, what, what do you do? You, you certainly can't fight with, uh, you know, immigration officials. And I suppose if you look on the other side of it, um, potentially, uh, you know, the UK at some stage might have a, a ban from, from Thailand. Um, so you could have potentially been stuck there for, for weeks on end. Who knows which one is, uh, is the better on, on this case. But yeah, just a, a terrible experience nonetheless. That's such a good point. It could, it could be a blessing in disguise. You'd, you'd rather be in the UK right now than in Thailand. And so maybe, maybe if you'd gone the day before, you'd be stuck in Thailand, not be able to get out. And so maybe that's the way to look at it. I, I understand it's frustrating and, it's, and it's, it's, it's annoying in some instances because you've obviously planned the trip and whatnot and yeah. you've put your life around. But we have to understand these are extraordinary circumstances and plans you've put in place a while ago or even the last week or two, they're in the air again. And so we have to understand that that's going to happen. And unfortunately, it's the price we pay for trying to stop this epidemic. Absolutely. Um, moving on to the next one and uh, the last question that we got. Uh, this one is from Shana. And her question is basically just how this impacts us economically, us being the general hardworking citizens. And I, I guess that's the ultimate crux of this whole discussion, Barry, um, is, uh, you know, the, the people on the on the firing line, the, the you and me, this is not all about the politicians sitting in their pretty offices, um, but in terms of the, the widespread effects, um, and I think this is where we're going to see the, the bulk of the effects. Um, and obviously, that that's kind of the reason why uh, we've seen markets crash um, because of this. Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's the concern that everyone is having. And obviously, everyone's looking after themselves and thinking about how this is impacting my own life. We've chatted a lot about the economic impacts. We think that workplaces are going to be shut down. We think that events are going to be shut down. We think that you might have to take some unpaid leave from work, potentially. You might have to work from home where you can. And so these are all going to have an impact on your individual situation. So I think the best advice that we can give is, is to stay calm and to kind of rely on the people around you, care for the people around you, and do your best to to follow the health advice that is, that is in the markets and understand that this is extraordinary and things are going to look weird and they're going to be strange. And there's a chance you're going to lose out on various things you've already paid for. So it's going to have an economic impact. It's not going to be good. But the measure of how bad it's going to be matters depending on what we do in the present. 
the better we adhere to the, the distancing and the isolation and whatnot right now, the, w the better the impacts are going to be going forward and the less you'll be affected. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes complete sense. Um, but I mean, I think just as a sort of practical basis, um, let's just talk about, you know, yours and my effects um, that we've seen so far, just to give the listeners, a, a, I suppose, a bit of context in, into the things that we're thinking and, and how we're going through it. Um, so, I mean, like I mentioned before, I'm personally on the on the job hunt in terms of the, the contract market again. Um, and obviously, this has come at the worst possible time. Um, the market is incredibly quiet, this side, uh, London generally typically buzzing, um, even though things are business as usual, obviously hiring managers are a lot of the times working from home. Um, because of that, you know, whenever they are in the office, they're, they're sort of picking up the, the other pieces of, of what they do on, on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think a lot of people are, because of that, uh, not wanting to bring contractors on um, where the company might potentially um, switch to working from home uh, completely. Um, and so th that's obviously had a profound impact for me. Um, also in terms of the, the half Ironman, like I mentioned, that's probably going to be unlikely to happen. Uh, also have some other trips booked up that, you know, will probably not happen. And, and the question is, what happens to those flights? What happens to those entrance fees? What happens to everything? Um, on your side, Barry, you were, you were mentioning you had a couple of flights uh, in the short term that you've also had to cancel. Yeah, so I was due to go to Cape Town on, on Thursday for the weekend for, to go and attend an event down in Cape Town, and that's all been canceled. I was due to sing in a choir concert on Easter Friday. That's been canceled. So everything's been canceled around us when it comes to event-wise. And so it really is, it can have an impact. And people are going to lose money, right? You're not going to be able to get that money yeah. back on flights or on concert tickets or various bits and pieces. And in a lot of instances, you're going to have to swallow that loss with as much pride as you can and try and be more frugal going forward. I think another important thing, Chad, is that in everyone's desire to hoard things like toilet paper and food and whatnot is to manage your individual cash flow and not go crazy too early because there's a risk that this quarantine could go on for a while, right? So be as frugal as you can and be clever with the way you spend your money right now. It's definitely a time to kind of stay at home and, and, and not worry, not, not go too crazy with your spending yeah. and try and bring your level of lifestyle down as much as possible um, to try and give you the best chance of surviving over the long term. It's especially the case if you're not employed at the moment or you're looking for work, etc. How do you make sure you maintain your kind of living standards yeah. without going too crazy? Absolutely. I think that's uh, some great practical advice there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, thanks for thanks for tuning in and thanks for all of the questions from everyone. Um, we hope that any of what we've said makes a bit of sense. There was quite a lot to get through and a lot that, that happened. Um, but, yeah, certainly thanks for, for tuning in and uh, and listening to our episode. Um, Barry, I mean, in terms of the, the, the next week, um, you know, potentially next week we'll be talking from a completely different vantage point. I think we will. And so that, that's always a concern with these sort of episodes. We worry that they are out of date by the time we get released. But hopefully some of the principles we've been chatting about and some of the principles around how the world is dealing with it has, has made, made sense and is of value to you. Um, like Chad says, we tried our best to give a well-rounded and nuanced take on what's going on around the world. This is obviously a very, very important topic and it's, it's impossible to ignore. It's like a very, very big health crisis around the world. And so please take care of yourselves out there. Take care of the people you care about and act in the best interests of your future selves. Act in the best interests of those who are more vulnerable than you and do the things we need to do to stop this epidemic. If we do that, 
Next week's episode will be much more cheerier, and each episode after that yeah. will be a better, better episode because we think about moving forward to the future. But like you say, Chad, who knows what happens in the next couple of days? Absolutely. Well, keep safe, keep kind to yourself, and uh, yeah, just be just be cautious of uh, of the way you conduct yourself. Thank you for listening to Across the Pond, and uh, we'll see you again next week. I'm Chad Sturley from London, and my co-host Barry Maurice in Johannesburg. Oh. Across the pond